Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. The month of April's horror sequel theme is in full swing, and what better way to keep the conversation around often maligned sequels going than to chat about Adam Marcus's infamous 1993 film Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday in which Jason Voorhees returns in a new and unexpected form, as his physical form has been obliterated by an FBI hit squad and his soul remains, and Jason now possesses the ability to, well, possess others, ensuring his rampage continues even if it's in a less traditional manner. And for this week's sequel chat, I'm joined by the author of Puppet Master Complete, A Franchise History, and noted Jason Goes to Hell fan, Nat Bremer. Nat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, thrilled to get to talk about this movie. Yeah, this is a film that, you know, I saw for the first time a couple of years ago, and maybe it was my taste in horrors changed, or maybe just my experience with sequels further down the line from the original, where when I saw it for the first time, I kind of watched it and was like, what the hell is this? This is nothing, nothing to do with what I had come to associate with the early Friday films mm-hmm. or just my enjoyment of them. And then, you know, over time and revisiting it and getting a better understanding of it, my enjoyment of the film, if anything, has kind of grown. But before we dive into this film that I think is still probably a sequel that's a little difficult for some people to uh, to swallow, um, I'd like to ask kind of your first experience with a, uh, a horror movie or a horror moment that really stuck with you for, uh, for better or worse. Ironically, um, it was the original Friday the 13th. I was always a monster kid, so the horror has like been a part of me, even if it was like Scooby-Doo for like as long as I can remember. And so I knew of like Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and everybody, but it was around first grade uh, that I met uh, this like childhood friend who introduced me to kind of the modern icons because I was always drawing Dracula and Frankenstein. And he was like, well, what about Freddie and Jason? I was like, who? And then he would, his parents and another friend's parents, they let them rent everything in the video store. And keep in mind, we were like six or seven. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) he built up Jason in my mind as this like mythological figure. So for weeks before I actually saw the movie, I would hear about certain things that happened or very much did not happen in the movies, but that he remembered happening in them until finally it was my very first sleepover. Uh, We convinced my mom to let us rent the original Friday the 13th. And I was so stoked for Jason that I just got to the end of that movie and I felt punked and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> but when Jason popped up out of the lake at the end of that film, I like, I, I leapt and I didn't like 
just leap with like the jump scare. It was like I was leaping with joy. I was like, oh my God, there he is. He exists. You didn't just make him up and pull this elaborate con on me. <laughs> That's awesome. Cause I had a, somewhat of a similar experience with that movie in that, and you know, kind of like you, I grew up with a lot of monster movies. Actually, my first, before I even saw like the Universal monster movies. I had seen a lot of the, my grandparents would uh, show me like the old Abbott and Costello meet the monsters. So mm -hmm. that was kind of like one of my first introductions. And then, you know, over time, I would become more and more interested in monsters and get to actually sit down and watch those movies. But when I was sort of coming into my love of horror, I didn't have parents that would let me watch a lot of the stuff that I probably wanted to watch at a young mm -hmm. age. But they would always, for whatever reason, let me watch those, uh, I think it was on AMC, those sort of like... Halloween specials that would come out with the hundred scariest movies or hundred scariest moments. Yep. And so I would be exposed to all of these moments from all of these classic horror movies, but I wouldn't have a lot of context for them. And so like you, when that moment happened, I had heard all about Jason. And in that one segment, I remember them showing so much of the original film in that, but it didn't have obviously Jason in a majority of mm -hmm. it for the original. And so by the, the segment was ending and I was like, well, where the hell is the guy in the mask? And then all of a sudden, when he jumps out of the lake, just jumping out of like out of my chair and being blown away by that moment, um, you know, from the jump scare element of it, but also just getting to see the big payoff that I'd basically been waiting for for that entire segment of that show. So we have uh, I think we have a similar similar uh, inception to Friday, the 13th, the series, as it were. But, you know, over time and in getting to you know, watch through the whole series and just watching a lot more of, you know, slasher sequels, but also horror sequels. I'm curious, like for you, what do you look for in a horror sequel, specifically like slasher sequels? Um, because there's, you know, there's a couple of camps that various people can fall into with what they want out of their sequels. But for you, I'm curious, what do you usually look for? I really, really gravitate towards sequels that push things in a different direction, which I think is a big part of why we're talking about this movie. But um, mm -hmm. for me, the biggest thing is balance. Like, can you do something wildly different with uh, a series while also adhering to at least the basic elements of not necessarily the story, but more often than not, the structure of what came before. So yeah, my favorite sequels are like, like, like this, like uh, Hellraiser 2 is a huge one for me in that it is a wildly different movie that still gives you everything the first movie gave you. Um, but yeah, I think this is a big part of why I like a lot of really genuinely unloved sequels like like Jason Goes to Hell, uh, like Child's Play 3 is another huge one for me. And I, I think um, those sequels that often just kind of push things to a new storyline or a new style or uh, often a new location just kind of really wind up resonating with me. Yeah, you and I, again, are very similar in that in that for a sequel that I really enjoy, it typically tends to be the ones that take a lot of the variables from, you know, the original or the one that came before it, but then take it in a wildly different direction. And I think about 
some of the, you know, speaking of Friday the 13th, like The New Blood is not a perfect film in my mind, but it's a sequel that I really enjoy because it takes it in such a wild new direction. And, you know, you have sort of these like uh, the furthermore emphasizing the supernatural nature of Jason, but taking it to the umpteenth degree, as it were, mm-hmm. and, you know, in exploring other, you know, whether it be slasher, just horror franchises in general, and getting to see the ways in which certain directors or certain creative teams latch on to certain elements from the original. And then they're like, well, let's fo- put more of a focus on this element or let's, you know, it could be something along the lines of like bigger is better mentality, which is not a bad mentality to have in a slasher mm-hmm. sequel or sequels in general. But often I'm looking for them to take this, whether it be the storyline or take a particular character and just evolve on them in a way that at the end of the day, like, I don't even necessarily know that it needs to be faithful to the original, but it builds on it in a way that's both entertaining and at the same time, at least somewhat resembles whether, you know, narratively, stylistically, or, you know, just having that love of uh, gory practical effects carrying over um, that makes for something that feels exciting and feels deserving of being associated with the name that was kind of tied to the original or the original first few films that, I don't know, it's the type of thing I've come to really appreciate more recently in that, you know, growing up, you always hear, or at least I did, you hear like, oh, well, yeah, they just kind of like rode that franchise into the ground Mm -hmm. or this or that, which is like that broad statement that's, um, you know, that I've, uh, I probably made when I was younger, which I didn't know what I was talking about at the time, not having experienced as many movies as I have now, but just now getting a greater appreciation for like directors and creative teams that take big swings that are not flawless, but they're at least evolving on something that I love in a way that feels creative and feels noteworthy. Mm -hmm. And so like bringing it back to Jason Goes to Hell, that was a film that, you know, when I saw a few years ago and was not expecting what I ended up seeing, I kind of had a really negative response to it initially because it, and I probably described it a lot of the ways that uh, I just said now where it's like, well, this movie clearly, it almost has nothing to do with the other films Uh, There's barely any Jason in it, this and that, but it's a film that the more I've seen, and I've probably now seen this like four times in the last two years, um, I've gotten a real appreciation for what it is, what it sets out to do, how wildly different it is. And I'm curious, like, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? How, what was your reaction to it? Yes. I hated this movie the first time I saw it and I hated it for, or at least didn't like it for a long time. Um, ironically, it's like the part two of my first memory because I watched Friday the 13th and I felt so jaded and ripped off by the fact that I was promised Jason and I wasn't given Jason that I skipped the whole series and I went directly to Jason Goes to Hell, which was the newest one at the time. And I had a friend of the family who would let me rent anything and i rented jason goes to hell because his name was in the title so i knew he was there and then in the first scene he gets blown up (laughs) he's like completely out of the movie until the end and again i was just so angry um and so growing up with it um becoming a huge fan in the the mid late 90s when there was no new Friday the 13th movie, um, this film was the iconography on all Friday the 13th merch. So I grew to love uh, 
just the physical design uh, of Jason in this film really early on. But I don't think, and I grew to be like, okay with the film to a point of like, like, oh, I can't believe how bad this movie is because it's so, it's just so different. I had that mentality of just, I wanted Jason for so long. And then it was more like, I didn't really think about the movie until I think it was, it was fairly recently. I think it was like 2015. I was having a marathon of the whole series and something about watching that immediately after the eight previous installments, it just clicked for me. And I was like, oh, this is, this is great. And I'm so glad that I finally came around to appreciating the movie on its on its own merits because I think they're plentiful and now I've done like such a complete 180 on it like I just absolutely love this movie now yeah you know um, me reaching out to you and asking you if you'd be up for chatting about this movie on Twitter was uh, a tweet that you had which said you went from like four I think it was from borderline disdain to full-blown love yes. um, and which is a great way to describe it, but also like, I definitely feel a similar way about it where when I came to it, I came to it, I watched probably the first two or the first three. And then I was like, took a break from it or just for whatever reason was not seeking out the other sequels and whatnot um, a handful of years ago. And I just randomly threw this one on because somebody told me that they loved it and they recommended it to me as a joke because they hated the movie. Mm -hmm. And so coming to it, removed from my experience with it, I was like, well, yeah, again, this is just kind of feels like cashing in on that Friday the 13th brand, that Jason brand. And it doesn't resemble what I enjoyed so much about those first two, first three films. But then, like you had said, I kind of went back and did a long marathon of them over, I don't know, a weekend or something and watching a bunch of the sequels that I hadn't previously seen for the first time. And that provides a great deal of context, I think, in terms of not only a wherewithal and understanding of the brand itself, but also of the period of time in which from the first film, obviously leading up to Jason Goes to Hell and whatnot, to when I did that marathon and had, you know, re-familiarized myself and then been exposed to later sequels I hadn't seen, I came away with a, you know, it wasn't love right out the gate on my second watch of it, but it was very much a better understanding of what they set out to do and not to say to excuse certain elements of the film, but to fully kind of see the vision that there was for it. And it's a film that, you know, the more I watch it, it just feels reflective, very reflective in terms of like understanding the source material, but also understanding where the franchise was at at that point. And, you know, I still don't think that it's a flawless film or anything like that, but it is a slasher sequel that I think does a lot more that's interesting than a majority of sequels out there that I've seen. And it takes big swings. Like I said, I'm a huge fan mm -hmm. of that with sequels and, you know, sometimes swings with, but more often than not, I find this film does a lot. That's actually interesting. That's not only brave, but like interesting and has a payoff when you kind of take a step back and look at the series as a whole and where this character has come and the potential for where he would go or he could go. Um, so for you, I guess like, what is one of the elements that really stands out in this sequel that makes it a memorable standout from the franchise? There are a lot. I mean, one, there's just the overall tone and style, but there are a lot of a lot of little things I love. Like 
I really love that this is the only Friday the 13th movie that gets that actually gives you a sense of the town. Like actually gets into the Crystal Lake community where we've never really branched out from the lake, except for a little bit in the first movie, to now like we have we have the diner and we have the police department, we have this whole outer cast of characters that had never even really been on the periphery before. Um so I really love that. Um, and I love just those, the, it's the, the eccentricities for the, me, for this movie uh, with me. There's like, you know, all the, all the little things you wouldn't expect, like the, the Jason's dead two for one burger sale, the, <laughs> um, the like ongoing WrestleMania, like borderline they live fight between Jason and Steven across like the jungle gym and all like the swings that it like all over like the outside of the house um that I just I just love. Um and it's just yeah it's really the tone and style. This is such a like it's fun. Um it's quirky. Um it just it really goes for broke on the effects. I can't like I can't believe anybody I, who I get not liking this movie would criticize the work that K&B did on this film, but, and then throwing in like the allusions to other horror movies, when you put that all together, it feels like a big fun haunted hayride of a film. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I, I think I would say like, in terms of it being very self-aware how can you make what is it, the ninth entry in a franchise and not be self-aware of what it is or what it has become or just the perception of it at that point in time? And this film really radiates that energy in a way that doesn't take itself too seriously. And, you know, again, that was an element that I didn't like the first time I saw it. I said, well, this is not that necessarily the other films in the series are super serious, but just this doesn't play it quite as seriously as some of the other films do. But now, latching onto it, this is just a movie that is a ton of fun to watch. And it's the type of thing that I would throw on at like a party setting or something. If people were like, oh, let's watch a movie. And I'd be like, you want to watch something that's super serious or you want to watch something that's fun? Mm -hmm. um, because this is one that I think that there's so many different elements and blending of genres in it and tones in it. And it can be confusing a little bit, but it's difficult to watch this movie and to be like, really, you don't think that it's kind of hilarious that this world in the movie now, like Friday 13th and Jason have been around for so long that the world itself is not like so cognizant of it that they're like tying him into marketing for little restaurant chains or, you know, just the overall tone that the residents and, you know, you're speaking about the fleshing out of the community around Crystal Lake and how the residents themselves aren't going to show animosity towards the serial killer. Like I think about the scene with the coroner mm -hmm. when, you know, Phil the coroner has been possessed by the spirit of Jason and then his assistant comes in and the assistant is like telling Jason's body like, fuck you, fuck you, like just swearing at the body. And then you get that fantastic news bulletin afterwards, which has, you know, I, I don't know if it's as well uh, constructed as that the satirical TV station for like RoboCop, but that's what I thought of where it's just like highly stylized. You know, they're reporting this guy's dead and all of a sudden like dead and big letters flashes on their faces, dead, dead, missing. Mm -hmm. Like that is so self-aware and humorous that it's, it makes for an incredibly fun film. Mm -hmm. And is there is almost something uh, 
RoboCop-ish about the the um, true crime show aspect of it, like the, 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 the skeezy dateline aspect of it, in <laughs> um, how far it goes, like with with Robert, with how like for the sake of ratings, he's gone to the point of stealing his girlfriend's mother's corpse and hiding it in the house. Like <laughs> right. Right. that is, you know, a, a kind of almost Robocop level of like, just how far can we push it? And I think another thing I like about um, the humor and the balance of tones in this movie is that the humor is kind of disarming because when it's like really fun um, and almost campy, like the, the gore goes for broke and uh, I think especially like the tent scene is just grisly and not a usual Friday the 13th way. Absolutely. The first time I saw this, it was thing back in the day and it was the R-rated version. So I don't think I got to see that scene in its full, you know, gory glory uh, until I found an uncut copy of it on DVD and got to see it. And I was, and, it, you know, generally, I don't know, maybe now I would be more uh, cognizance of it, just more aware of it. But like back in the day when you're a kid and you're watching these things, you don't necessarily pick up on all the nuances maybe, or you don't, mm -hmm. you don't notice the differences between an R rated or an unrated cut. But with this movie, like there's, I think it's an additional three minutes or something in the uncut version. And you notice every single moment of it because the film pops that much more for the reason that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. like that kill is legitimately shocking the first time you see mm -hmm. it because, you know, whether it be because of uh, rating interference or these different things, some of the kills in the earlier films in the franchise were definitely undercut or they had to go back and they had to edit out the, uh, the money shot as it mm -hmm. were for some of those kills. But with this movie, like when you see that and she gets, you know, not only skewered, and then completely ripped in half, like that's a horrifying moment. And it, like you said, they go for broke with that effect in a way that you see that and you can't just like either shout, shout out when you see that or almost like jump out of your seat. It's so shocking and so visceral, which is rare for a franchise. You know, think about there's nine of these now at this point. I mean, you hadn't really seen something that graphic in the franchise mm -hmm. up until that moment. And, you know, Partially, it was probably because of, you know, the developments and the further fine tuning of practical effects and whatnot. But that is a legitimately shocking kill that sets the, the tone of the film really, really well. And, you know, there are a number of other kills in the movie that I don't know if necessarily they're as gory as that, but they definitely don't. They don't squander the quality of anything for going for maybe a little more elaborate kills or something of that effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's just something so great about that it's. One, it's just a great effect. Um, like just K and B, they they really pull it off. But two, even in an un a, you know, a previously like uncut uh any previous Friday the 13th movie, when the tenth spike goes through her and she you know kind of looks down and acknowledges it, that's where every previous Friday the 13th kill stops. You know, that's where every other movie before it cut away. And so the the split um, happening, just the pacing of it is, I think, what's so shocking. But it's not just that it happens, but how slowly it happens and how your eye has been trained on these movies to know when you're going to move to something else and then 
kind of be forced to see the next few seconds. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I, I love that. Well, I think that that's a great uh, lead in to my next point about something that I really, really appreciate about this movie. And, you know, it being so cognizant of its place in the franchise history at this point is that the film essentially challenges your expectations for what a sequel could be. And, you know, specifically what a Friday the 13th sequel could be at basically every turn, it feels like in a lot of ways, you know, from that masterful construction of that kill and it really, you know, playing against the audience expectation of like, okay, well, she gets skewered, impaled, and then it's going to cut away now because like you'd said, that's what we've been trained to do. And then you have that big payoff because it lingers in the scenes atmosphere for a minute or a couple seconds longer than you're used to and that having a massive payoff. But also I think the way that the film opens is, you know, and I don't say it lightly, I think that's a really masterful opening in terms of it playing against audience expectations, right? Because when I first saw this movie and again, didn't have the perception of it that I do now or an understanding of what it was going for, I was like, okay, this is just like a bad version, a bad goofy version of how all these movies open, which, you know, now, of course, I realize that's the point <laughs> and how it plays into those tropes in such a predictable fashion, but it's doing so in a way that when it sets up for, you know, Jason of getting uh, mortar striked essentially and blowing up, like that is a perfect perfect buildup to a moment where we've never seen him killed in this manner before. And this is being, you know, in terms of a slasher sequel, this is like the equivalent of a Michael Bay uh, explosion or something, which we hadn't seen previously in a movie like this. Mm -hmm. And I just love how at every turn in that opening intro, it just goes down this checklist of what you're expecting and what you're expecting and then has that payoff of an ending to that opening scene that we've never seen before in, uh, you know, in this really goofy, but at the same time, fantastically uh, over the top killing of Jason. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, as as an adult and especially now as a screenwriter, I am jealous of the opening scene because I would love just to be a fly on the wall for the pitch of this movie to be like, okay, we're going to start off with what everybody expects from a Friday the 13th movie. And I even like, kind of like to see people watch this movie for the first time, just to watch her to be like, oh my God, now she's in the towel. She's <laughs> doing everything wrong. Uh, and because everybody knows or thinks they know what to expect from one of these movies, not even just a Friday the 13th movie, but this type of film. Uh, and so nobody, nobody expects Jason to be blown to pieces in the opening scene <laughs> before the credits roll. Uh, yeah, I'm just, that's even when it finally clicked for me on that rewatch, it was literally the opening scene that got me like, oh no, wait, like this is, it was almost like I was having a conversation with myself at that point, like, pull your head out of your ass. Cause like, this is everything <laughs> you love. Right. Uh, it's just, it's so, such a wild, uh, wonderful opening. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that, you know, even though the film doesn't have a lot, you know, J I would say traditional Jason is absent from 95%, if not more of the movie. I love that the film acknowledges, you know, it's taking this big swing, which we'll get into, but it acknowledges Jason's history 
in a way that is an element of slashers that I really, really like, even if not all of them do it. And that is his, you know, costume or fit, if you will, has inklings of like his history in it throughout the other films, right? Mm-hmm. At this point, you get to see the mask and it's basically become fused to his body. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that this was written with the idea that this was a direct sequel to um, The New Blood, I think. I think that it was written and it was supposed to just completely omit the Goes to Manhattan film. But that would line up with the idea that like, yeah, he was at the bottom of Crystal Lake after getting trapped down there. And then he was there for so long that, you know, whatever your body does when you're being submerged underwater for years and years, like your skin is basically going to morph around that mask or that mask becomes a part of you. Mm -hmm. And that's an element that I really, really like about this film and just the, the brief portrayals that we get to see of him in that it's all reflective of the past films and you get to see little bits of trauma that his body has taken or that his mask has taken. And sometimes with, you know, I guess particularly slashers just because there are, they tend to have so many of them in a series, but sometimes when their costumes don't change or the character themselves don't change, it almost carries it like, well, yeah, forget the last one. We're just going to move on with this story. And we just want you to think about this. But I really appreciate that, you know, over the years, Jason's costume has changed and been reflective of his various experiences and whatnot, which really feeds into that, like the mythos behind that character mm-hmm. and how he really is this thing of urban legend. He doesn't pop out in a majority of the films later down the line looking like he just, you know, woke up and he just looks all pristine and everything, right? He wears his age and he wears his kills. And for a film that has so little of him in it, and is so self-aware and has this tone that we've been talking about that can be very humorous at times. I'm appreciative of the brief glimpses we get of him that are still at least reflective or acknowledge the films that came before, even if, you know, it's not a great deal of time dedicated to them. Yeah. I love, um, I like I've said before, I love the design of Jason in this film. And, uh, I think, Partially, it's because he's not in the film as much that he's able to look that good. Because it's the first time Kane be like did a full body suit for this, and they put so much work into that. But um, what you're talking about is a thing that I think is also one of the things that's special and unique about the Friday the Thirteenth franchise because there was never, you know, a game plan, and Jason's look can be wildly different from movie to movie to the point where if it wasn't for these sequels, we would never have the iconography of Jason in the first place. But what I love about the look of Jason in Jason Goes to Hell is that it's like a genuine monster. It's like an actual behemoth. And the mask, like we said, it's it's become embedded into his face. And to me, this is Jason the campfire story. This is Jason the thing that's more of a monster than a man in your mind when you hear about it for the first time. And it's perfect for a film in which everybody knows about Jason and which Jason is this thing that lives in everyone's head. Uh, and you know, to the point of being kind of a buried uh, family secret for the, for the Kimballs or for Diana, or, you know, being this kind of haunting thing in the past for Creighton Duke. Uh, just in all these ways, Jason is this ever-present figure in the mind of every character. And so to portray him uh, in so kind of grotesque and uh, really 
uh, overdone in a spectacular way of an appearance. It's just, I think it's genuinely perfect for the movie that this is. Yeah, which, you know, portraying him as the monster really kind of further <laughs> reinforces how fantastic it is when they riddle him with bullets and he's still standing after, you know, a thousand bullet rounds. And the only thing that will kill him or we think will kill him is literally having to, you know, have a mortar strike brought down on his head, which further shows just because, like, you know, in all the past films, he always takes some damage, but then eventually will stand back up and whatnot, which always kind of leave, even though at that point, you know, like, yeah, he is a supernatural entity. But, you know, the people in the movie in that moment, they don't really know. They could they still, you know, are probably playing through their minds like, well, you know. Who knows, maybe we just missed a vital organ or this and that. But having that really moment where his entire body is destroyed further speaks to like just he's no longer there's no more doubt in anybody's mind, especially when you have that news bulletin where they're like, yeah, he's got like 83 kills or something that they know about. And there could be scores more, they say, mm-hmm. I think. And so that is I think that's a great point that you make and just that at this point in the franchise to not portray him as a monster and for the people involved in the story of this film to not realize that he's a monster would be pretty ridiculous. So the fact that they really do go that extra mile and literally, you know, destroying the monster and then having him have an even more monsterish, uh, and I would say a more literal monster version of himself, that being like the slug creature, mm-hmm. um, which again is an element of this film that took one or two rewatches for me to get on board with. But then I really came to appreciate, you know, the uh, invasion of the body snatcher-esque kind of like slug creature mm-hmm. that I think that that element, I it really didn't click with me until a couple of rewatches because I was still kind of view this as like, okay, this is just another horror sequel or another horror slasher. But to really like have that element to it, it really does allow the other elements and, you know, be the humor elements or some of the, I would say even like action elements of the film mm-hmm. to really all blend together in a way that they couldn't, if it was just a traditional Jason for a majority of the film. I mean, how do you feel about their inclusion of like Jason having this like slug monster that he tries to, you know, mouth feed or, uh, or just give to other characters he encounters? I, I, I kind of love how just wild it is, just how it, comes out of nowhere how suddenly a <laughs> uh, dude's throat opens up and this thing crawls out of it but by this point in this movie it's hard not to be along for the ride when that finally happens but i do agree with people um who i think um the shot of it going into diana is is a little much yeah, that's a it's much. <laughs> wildly unnecessary but other than that yeah the the existence of it just this crazy wild thing and i like as a fan of the overall franchise you know i don't think it's necessarily saying that you know uh that jason it was never like a child or jason is inherently this weird evil demon thing deep down but i like that uh jason has it like as as a last ditch escape plan <laughs> like if everything goes to shit uh and there's absolutely nothing left of my body then at least the little demon seed in me is going <laughs> to get into something and carry on um but i just i i love the the vehicle that it provides to kind of because you've had jason 
uh, out of the movie for so long. I love the notion of taking Jason out at the beginning and bringing him back at the end. So the the thing I do like best about it is the it provides this wild, uh, unbelievable vehicle to bring Jason back for that that climactic fight. Um, but how we get there, it's not a thing any other movie would do. I just love that a movie this deep into its franchise can be legitimately surprising in a way that, you know, it might not click initially, but I'm appreciative of the fact that they go in this direction that is so out of left field that you could never see coming, you know, no matter how many of the films you watch leading up to this movie, that's so unpredictable. And I appreciate that, you know, you get just enough of what you're expecting, you know, like you had said, the book ending of the film with the more traditional Jason, even if there's not a lot of it, I'm still appreciative that you have those two moments in the beginning and in the end that ground a lot of this kind of just bizarre uh, overstimulation uh, creatively in terms of like them taking this massive swing that, you know, on paper, you might be like, well, what the hell? Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? And, you know, I even thought that the first time I saw the movie, I was like, what are we doing here? What is it like? What is the purpose of this? But when you look at the entire film as being this fun ride that's not afraid to challenge expectations, it really does feel like the perfect, like, I don't know that this film would be what it is if it had just been, you know, a Jason the entire time in a traditional manner. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which they're able to use this out of left field concept, again, kind of fuels a lot of the other tones that this film dabbles in that the other ones don't quite do as much. And, you know, we you briefly mentioned uh, like the effects in the film and like a lot of the squibs in this, I thought were really, really well done. And, you know, them not skimping on any of that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kind of uh, describe this as being somewhat of an action movie. Like there's a good amount of shooting in the movie, but it carries it as if it is not action typically found in a horror movie, right? You've got, when they're shooting the people that are possessed, like they're exploding this black goo everywhere and whatnot. And it looks really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that I was most surprised by. Um, maybe it's because I just got done rewatching uh, Dead Heat or something like that, where, you know, you have lots of this gunplay against the undead, but there is this comedic tone behind everything. Um, and that was something that I really, really appreciated on this rewatch that I hadn't uh the first few times I'd seen it. There really is a kind of action element to it and just how how much bigger uh, it is, I think, because, you know, there was a whole Final Friday mindset behind the film. Um, but, you know, you have the, the opening, uh, which is, you know, so action-oriented. It's almost Predator-esque. Um, <laughs> and then you have, but even throughout the, the the bulk of the movie of the uh Jason possession um you have sequences where Jason is taking out more people at one time than he ever had so you have a massacre at the police station that leads directly into a massacre at the diner and these are just bigger set pieces but you also in those sequences see people fight back more and not just you've always kind of seen the the heroine and sometimes the boyfriend of the heroine fight back but there are a lot of side characters taking on jason in this movie like vicky the waitress puts up a a hell of a fight before she's impaled (laughs) 
Uh, and those things I think are kind of really um, interesting aspects of the movie that that I appreciate is that you do just have this kind of bigger canvas. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I would be remiss not to mention what is probably what I think is probably the best bit of practical work in the movie, which is when the one I forget the cop's name, but when one of the cops that has been possessed, basically the the slug creature leaves his body to go to the other host and then his body basically decomposes in real time, which is sort of reminiscent of like in Hell, the reverse of Hellraiser mm-hmm. when Frank is, you know, getting back his skin and whatnot. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's, I think that's so clever. That one that's so visceral and so unexpected and weird, but also so clever. And for me, that's actually the scariest scene in the film, not just of uh, the body horror aspect of it, but for one touch in that scene that I love, which is the deputy, Josh, um, as Jason leaves his body, he actually returns to his own body after he started melting. So he is already melting and breaking down and dying horrifically as he comes back into his own self. And it's just the awareness in his eyes and the fact that he just starts screaming as he's turning into goo is one of the more genuinely haunting bits of this film for me. Uh, that's one of my favorite moments. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably why the inclusion of the slug creature works so well for me is that it is so steeped in body horror, right? Body horror is probably my favorite subgenre of horror in that it just the idea that something is being done to your body against your will and how that can change you. And really, you know, Adam Marcus takes it a step further and it's like, okay, this thing enters you and takes over you, but it gives yourself, it gives you your own sort of, uh, your cognizant nature back to you in your final, most excruciating moments, which, you know, it's a brutal, disturbing moment that almost adds a little bit of dark humor to it, Mm -hmm. right? The idea that his body just doesn't disintegrate or anything immediately. It makes him stew in the realization that his entire body is rotting. And like you had said, I mean, starts screaming Mm -hmm. almost immediately, which again, talking about how this movie plays with tone, I mean, tonally, that and then talking also just, you know, about having that visceral moment with the tent pole, it really does for a film that I think a lot of people view as being against the idea of what Friday the 13th was or not in line with it. If anything, this is a far darker movie than some of the other sequels mm-hmm. that a lot of people, I would assume, view as being like, like air quotes, like real sequels or in line with being a Friday the 13th film. Mm-hmm. Whereas this movie, the entire thing is not this dark, bleak affair, but it definitely has some of the darkest moments that then, I don't know if you would, I wouldn't describe it as being undercut, but then maybe they, then being followed with bits of humor, some people are maybe just immediately don't like realize initially, or for the people that watched it once, uh, you know, not everybody watches movies four or five times or more Mm -hmm. than that, like you and I, but like, if you were to watch this once, and then you see that disturbing moment, but then it gets followed up with a scene that has like a bunch of jokes in it or something or a more humorous tone. You might immediately kind of move on from that scene and not kind of think about it in any greater detail. Mm-hmm. But this is a movie that I think almost is required to be viewed more than once just because of the layers. And, you know, not to say that it's not messily including a lot of these tones or the blending is not always seamless, 
it still does a lot of really, really interesting things. I think that, you know, if, uh, maybe if it had a little bit of a smoother production behind it or editing process behind it, like some of the intentions behind it would have been a little clearer maybe, Mm -hmm. but I'm incredibly thankful that like it was willing to take those massive risks and those massive swings that give you this unique film that doesn't always work, but more often than not, it's entertaining at the very Mm -hmm. least. Yeah. How do you feel though about the film kind of expanding on that Jason mythos and the bloodline element of it? Because that was an element that, you know, on a rewatch, I personally, it, it still is not my favorite part of the movie, but, you know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. It's, yeah, the fact that, like, it's a Voorhees, it needs to be a Voorhees, and he needs to be reborn through a Voorhees. It's very, I mean, it fits for the the kind of buried uh, secret legacy of of the movie just on its own. Um, it, it is pretty Halloween-ish. <laughs> by that point yeah um but i really love that it's the first film to uh really ever acknowledge jason's father and give him a name uh because he you know elias Voorhees was a name we'd never heard before this point even though they spell Voorhees wrong in this movie at every <laughs> turn um despite that um uh i you know, I, I like the the inclusion of that aspect because I know that Jason's father, they had tried to bring in in part six and had been written been written out um, and still made it into like the novelization. But uh, that character, when Jason is so defined by his mother, had been a, a really noticeable absence to not even mention going all this time. So that aspect of it, I, I really like. But yeah, there are some flaws with the uh, kind of familial component of of the movie. I, you know, I guess I'll I'll ref- rephrase my thought on it. I like the idea that you know they're paying attention to the other side of his uh, parental coin, right? The idea that that's not something the other films have dabbled in. I guess. I'm just not as in love with like the the current other members of the Voorhees family that are in the film that all of the attention to like the importance of the bloodline and this and that, I guess it just still doesn't necessarily click with me that much in a way that I found it to be, you know, we'll leave it at. It feels very Halloween-esque in the terms of those later sequels, right? Like you had said. I think the, the bigger issue with it is that it's a weird thing to drive so much of the plot and not make either because it's like diana and jessica are secret you know members of the Voorhees family they're jason's bloodline and i think uh if there's a bigger issue with it for me it's that it's a weird thing to drive so much of the plot while not making either of them the main character of the movie (laughs) yes because steven's the main character of the movie so that I think is the most jarring aspect. If if Jessica was actually the protagonist of the film, I think it would just naturally hold a lot more resonance. There you go. You put that better than I could have. I was struggling. How do I want to articulate that? But that's exactly right. I mean, yeah. And you know, not to say that I don't think Steven is an entertaining character. He's definitely entertaining, but 
I think that that's the component that's always missing for me where I'm always watching this movie and I'm like, well, why? Like, yeah, he's entertaining. He's not a character that I necessarily like dislike or anything, mm-hmm. but why is he the main character? Mm-hmm. It does, and That's the missing component and the, the lack of an explanation behind that is probably why still like the story maybe doesn't necessarily always click for me as much as it could. But, you know, generally when I'm watching this, I'm either entertained by those big swings it takes, or I'm entertained just by the fact that like I'm subjecting my friend that has never seen this movie to watching mm-hmm. it. And I'm getting a secondhand enjoyment out of their, you know, uh, befuddlement at what they're sitting through or like, they just have this rough idea of what Friday the 13th, what Jason is. And then they're like, wait, he's not in it. And there's a slug monster uh, crawling inside of people. Like that is kind of sometimes what I'm getting my enjoyment out of. It's that type of thing though, where, even if it doesn't click for me, I guess I'm still appreciative of the fact that they're taking a swing at fleshing out this mythology that we think that we know so well, and yet they're able to introduce this little wrinkle into it that is so foreign or that is so unexpected in a way that, you know, again, makes for a strange, but, you know, as a fan of these movies and somebody that's watched so many of them, I'm just appreciative it doesn't feel like the one that came before it, which is all at the end of the day I'm really looking for when you get, you know, nine, 10, 11 films deep into a franchise. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to dig into that, uh, that final scene, which is by far one of the coolest moments, I think, maybe even in the entire franchise, right? The idea where you get Jason coming back in the flesh and then his actual descent into hell. Yes, yes. Uh, like I said, I love, and it's another action moment of the action beat of the film. I love the the just huge fight which because i think because kane hodder wasn't given um a ton to do in this movie compared to friday the 13th movies he did both before and after it i think it was really him that he wanted to choreograph a really like knockdown drag out fight between jason and steven and i i love uh, just how long that goes on, especially because it's the most we're getting out of that that Jason. Uh, and I think it's really neat the um, the send off to hell because uh, there are, there were so many effects in this movie that were redone at the last second. So like you had the the hell. Uh, the little slug hell baby worm um, they had created this elaborate costume uh, for a stunt actor to wear initially and they'd cut that and then um, you'll see in a lot of uh, publicity stills for the film Jason's actual like being dragged down to hell moment uh, looks completely different than it does in the film where there were these actual demons uh that were all around him kind of dragging him down um and i don't know if they just didn't like play as well on film but it's it's very different to have these big uh muppet hands kind of come out of the ground which i still think is really neat because it's just it's just wild that it's happening in a friday the 13th movie and then you have one of my favorite aspects of that whole final sequence um is I can't believe we haven't even really mentioned the character yet, but one of the most iconic aspects of this film is Creighton Duke and Stephen Williams as Creighton Duke. And uh, that he, I love characters that are 
experts until they are actually faced with the thing. So I really have a thing for people who are like absolutely like the guy to kill this thing and then they just get taken out. So I love that essentially Creighton Duke finally comes face to face with Jason and he just gets bear hugged to death. And that that's <laughs> it. Um, I I yeah. really enjoy that aspect of it, but I also love his line where he just goes, oh, you son of a bitch, you remember me because there are so many aspects of this movie that feel um, really interestingly like lived in and just that the community has been, you know, had to had this awareness of Jason and that I, it's a lot, it's a sore spot for a lot of people, but I love that Creighton Duke has a relationship with Jason that we don't know, that there is a backstory there that we don't get any of. And I think that's more interesting to me. Um, so I love, I love that aspect. And then just, just the way it goes bananas with the magic dagger and the demon <laughs> hands and um, maybe my favorite bit where um, just the, the light show when it's, we don't know if, um, you know, if it's all the souls Jason has claimed that are just shooting out of his body, but there's an amazing, just little touch in there that again, uh, plays to the filmmaker's sense of humor and that when the souls are all dissipating after Jason's been dragged down, they make the shape of a hockey mask as they're mm -hmm. fading away. Um, so it's like they can't resist that like one last little like gag other than the gag that is the actual like ending shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, just all of that it's it's so bananas and uh yeah i just it always it's like my favorite part of the film it just absolutely goes for broke in that finale yeah you know that ending really carries it as if this is the final chapter right mm -hmm. if this were like in this scenario where this is actually the final chapter which you know anybody that has watched horror films for more than uh, a couple of years knows that that word is not to be treated with the gravitas maybe the marketing might uh, might imply with any franchise. But if this were to be the final one, imagine this is the send-off. And, you know, whatever reservations some people might have about the majority of the film, like, I, don't, I feel like you'd be hard-pressed to make an argument that this is not a fantastic ending to that character. This idea that it's like, well, where would this character go if they were to die? Well, obviously they'd go to hell mm -hmm. and we're going to give you this hell of a light show featuring demonic monsters dragging them down to mm -hmm. that. And, you know, to take it back to that Kane uh, Hodder comment that you made a moment ago, um, it really does feel like a fight scene that is choreographed by an actual stunt person, mm -hmm. right? In the way that it's dragged out in that it's not necessarily indicative of the traditional kind of kill scene or something like of that extent that maybe a director would go for where it's like, okay, you want to keep the tension and we have to get to the money shot of this kill and have the gory moment and then cut the camera really quickly. This feels like a stunt person that wants to get their hands dirty with this scene. They don't want to have a ton of cuts from this. They want it to be very grueling and for the audience to feel that. And if anything, I would almost equate it to like, it feels like a wrestling match almost yeah. where he's like going yeah. through these different moments where he's like hitting him with the rake and then he's throwing him mm -hmm. and then he grabs him from behind the scruff of the neck and throws him into the jungle mm -hmm. gym. But then of course he's not just going to pull him off the jungle gym. He's going to turn the whole fucking thing over yeah. and, you know, 
it might kill him. It might break a bone, but he's still going to go, you know, toss his corpse again or toss his, uh, toss his body again. Yep. And there's something about that that I think initially I didn't enjoy because I, I probably said something along of like, well, why would Jason want to toy with this prey like that? But in revisiting the film and, you know, knowing about Kane Hodder doing the choreography and whatnot, like, well, no, this is exactly why this is awesome because Jason is playing with his food essentially mm-hmm. Before he consumes it, uh, whether, you know, he's just going to kill him or literally consume his body, uh, which is what he's been known to do in this film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's, again, the differences that are kind of the interesting elements here. And it's because, you know, Jason had had big fights like the showdown between Jason and, and Tina was also not like anything we'd seen before in Friday the 13th movie. And um, and again, I don't think, uh, even though he's everybody's favorite Jason, essentially, I don't always think Kane Hodder gets enough credit for what he does as Jason, because there are so many little touches in the new blood where you can see it going through Jason's mind as he's looking around, and then he looks up at her and he's like, oh, you're doing this? And those little <laughs> right. aspects of performance that I think are really clever, and he does that here as well um in this whole thing that's essentially you know i don't want to take away from adam marcus and say that he's directing the sequence but he choreographed the whole thing was in an inch of its life to be like no we're going to get you know if you're gonna put me in this goddamn suit we're gonna get everything we can out of it (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, and i i admire that absolutely um and you know bring it back to creighton duke for a minute um, are you aware of kind of the the moment that was cut out of the film or that was never filmed, but it was supposedly in the original script, like his backstory, yeah. his relationship with Jason? Yeah. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it was supposed to be that him and his girlfriend were canoeing on Crystal Lake and then Jason basically kills her yeah. and he survives. And he survived. And that is what has instilled that lifelong uh, hatred for Jason that he has and why that's so personable. And I don't know, I'm, I'm of two... Two sides with that, where I agree with you that if you don't know the relationship between the characters and, you know, generally with horror, my thing is like, well, the less you know, either the scarier or the more intriguing something can be just because, you know, your mind is going to use the variables that are presented to you. And then you essentially will create a story in your own mind with what you're given. But in terms of like this film, I don't know. I think I would... Because I'm not a huge fan of his character, but I feel that if I had known more about why he was so determined with Jason, he wouldn't play as maybe as cheeseball as I find him to be. And he'd, he'd probably still be pretty cheesy, but just like having more insight into his character and why he's so aggro over the top about a lot of things might have made me, you know, appre- not appreciate, but just like entertain his character a little more. Yeah, um, that's exactly weirdly. I think the exact point you're making is exactly why I disagree because oh. <laughs> he is so over the top and so people that I don't think any explanation would be good enough for just him being the way that he is. Like they were canoeing and she got killed. That's not enough for the, the person that he is. And so like, with how absolutely unhinged he is over Jason, I don't think there's anything uh, that would be 
better than what could possibly be the case in your own mind because everything would be just like oh it's just another person who you know we've had a lot of people survive jason at this point and i don't think they turned into this guy um, <laughs> right so yeah i don't think anything could um really excuse it i don't think anything could be as wild as what you could possibly conjure up in your own mind for why is this guy the way that he is well that's fair enough and i think that we can probably both agree though that like his request of five hundred thousand dollars to kill the most notorious serial killer in america is like pretty reasonable at this point considering uh which i thought was hilarious that when he mentions that fee people were like well that's ridiculous but it was like uh, this guy's killed hundreds of people and nobody can stop him and that that's an unreasonable amount Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh i guess before we wrap up are there any other elements that i skipped over that you think kind of make this a standout from the other sequels not to say it's your favorite sequel but make it a a notable standout from the friday the 13th franchise i think we covered pretty much every beat as to why I think this movie at the very least stands on its own and why it is an an interesting movie and interesting on its own merits but also I don't love to say interesting on its own merits because I love to I love to look over all these franchises as a pop culture landscape and judge them on like what what was the idea for the franchise at the time so I don't even necessarily subscribe to the notion that uh, Halloween 3 would be a better movie if it was just called Season of the Witch, because I love it as the sticks out like a source on element of like for this brief period in time, that was what they wanted the Halloween franchise to be. And I think that's kind of more interesting pop culturally. And so I, I love that this isn't just this weirdo slasher movie, but I I love that it is what it is at its point in the Friday the 13th saga. Well, I think that, you know, before we wrap up, that's a perfect uh, segue into like that final shot of the movie in that the idea that, you know, you have, you have Jason's mask is the only thing that remains and whose arm pops out of the ground, pulling it further down to hell or to a dream dimension. But, you know, Freddy Krueger and, you know, speaking of pop culture and whatnot, I think that those two franchises were so prevalent in pop culture that that scene, whether or not it would ever materialize, and, you know, we obviously know it would eventually materialize mm-hmm. in a crossover, but at that period, nobody knew that. That Nobody knew that that was the type of thing that would ever actually materialize on the screen, which was very much kind of like bringing many of uh, schoolyard conversations about horror movies and this like, oh, who would you want to see fight this person or this person? Oh, this character would kick that guy's ass. Like, that's such a major moment of the film that is only, you know, a couple of handfuls of seconds long. Mm. But it feels like such a present or a gift to the audience that, you know, I'm sure was the source of like a decade's worth almost of, uh, of you know, conversations about like, could we ever get a movie like that, a crossover between these franchises and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, um, I, you know, I think it's so interesting that, you know, they're adamant, Adam Marcus is adamant that that was not designed as a tease. That was just designed as as kind of one last gag. Uh, and it's so fascinating to me that some of the biggest um, 
crossovers have originated that way. That was just kind of designed as uh, just one last hurrah uh, for essentially two franchises at that point. Uh, and the the alien skull and xenomorph skull in Predator 2 was just designed as, as kind of a, a nod and a reference, but people just were rampant with that. And I can't, you know, for me, looking back, it's like, I don't see how they didn't know, especially when there had already been discussions of this movie in the past when they were at separate studios. So that even if it wasn't designed as a tease, it became one almost immediately. And that the first, you know, the first official draft of Freddy vs. Jason was turned in just a year later. So it's like this happened in 1993 and they got a script in 1994 and then just went for like the next nine years trying to to get that to happen um because i think it's a no-brainer it's also just like by this point in the franchise it's just so natural it's like an even playing field it's just like we've killed freddie off and we've killed jason off so well now they're in the same place and they're got they're bound to be right. <laughs> right it really is you know when you talk about crossovers it's the type of thing that it, obviously it's much more difficult to make it in film because of licensing things like that but every time that we've gotten one of those crossover type films whether it be Freddy vs. Jason or AVP it's really like bringing to the big screen what we've been able to and probably has not been fully appreciated what comics have been able to do for so mm -hmm. long right the idea that you've been able to have any number of crossovers between different IPs and comic books and you get these four or six issue series like you know Terminator vs. Uh, RoboCop and these types mm -hmm. of things or any, any, it seems only any IP from any corner of uh, comics or, you know, genre have crossed at some point, you know, Judge Dredd versus Batman, stuff like that, Xenomorph versus uh, Batman, things of that nature, that when you get one of those types of films to actually come onto the big screen, you know, they're not perfect films often, but you get to live those moments in the, to the types of action you, you've only been able to experience in panels of a comic book, mm -hmm. uh, which is always exciting. Like, I mean, if we were to get another crossover film today, I wouldn't care what the IPs were. I would just go and see it immediately yeah. because getting to see those characters come to life on the big screen is like a childhood dream come true that, you know, whether it be nostalgia or just getting to see it come to life, it would be exhilarating and as exciting as it was seeing Freddy versus Jason for the first yeah, time. Yeah. And even in the horror realm, it's something that happens a lot more than people would realize on the comic book page, like Jason versus Leatherface was a 1994 comic series and army of darkness versus reanimator and all these. Yeah. That was a comic series, all these really fun, just wild uh, things that have happened. Uh, Hellraiser versus Nightbreed and yeah I, I I'm a crossover nut I love when those types of movies happen I think the biggest movie that uh got away from me was the Hellraiser Halloween crossover movies that never materialized uh specifically because of how mismatched those IPs are like I think those are the things that are interesting to me that you know Jason and Freddy are wildly separate characters uh, and tonally separate franchises a lot of the time. And I think mishmashing those elements is always such a fascinating thing for me. Yeah. And, you know, it would 
take a number of years before we'd get to see Freddie and Jason on the big screen together. But, you know, even if, again, I might have some issues with that film, like every time I go back and revisit it, I'm just so overwhelmed by the reality of like, you have these two icons that, you know, I love, but I'm sure, you know, many horror fans love as well. And getting to see them occupy the same space in a way like that they do is just, it's so, it's a childhood dream come true and whatnot. And, you know, I'm, uh, I feel very fortunate that I was able to pick your brain about Jason Goes to Hell and uh, somebody that's as enthusiastic to talk about it as you are, because I'm coming around to it and it's a film that I, uh, I enjoy more and more. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat about this movie for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. I was uh, so happy to do it. I want to give you a chance to uh, plug your work as well before I let you go, because uh, your your work, especially, you know, I've read a lot of your stuff for Bloody Disgusting over the years, and I've really appreci- uh, enjoyed it. So I'd like to give you a chance to uh, plug your Twitter, plug your work. Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt Bremer. Um, I, like I said, I, I do a lot of trying to kind of get back into uh, writing for, for Bloody Disgusting. I got an article that just came out uh, last week on... Um, on Moon Knight, on all the um, previous attempts to bring Moon Knight to TV before this one. And uh, I got a, a book, Puppet Master Complete, Franchise History, uh, Comprehensive History of All, 14 Puppet Master movies, uh, and um, uh, the comics and tie-ins and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, two uh, slasher fiction anthologies uh slices of julie and julie by the fire available all available on amazon uh i was so happy to be here and thanks for having me absolutely yeah maybe i'll uh, i'll have to have you back sometime to pick your brain about puppet master a series that i have uh yet to dabble in but you know again your enthusiasm whether it's in your articles or on twitter always comes through for uh movies and franchises that you're passionate about i'm really happy about that yeah thank you Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.